to River City 360, views and news from around Winnipeg. My name is Nolan Bicknell. With me, as always, is my co-host, Robert Zirk. On today's show, have you heard the buzz about urban beekeeping? Chris Kirouac, one of the founders of Bee Project Apiaries, will tell us all about the importance of bees and how you can help protect them. Then, did you know Manitoba was home to the first helicopter flight in Canada and the second helicopter flight in the entire world? We're going to be speaking with Charlie Frabe, whose father and uncles designed, built, and flew Canada's first helicopter 80 years ago in Homewood, Manitoba, to learn more about this amazing story. We'll also continue our conversation with Brigitte Depap, Youth Engagement Coordinator at the Winnipeg Foundation, about the Foundation's summer internship program, and we'll also speak with a couple of the interns about their experiences working with local charities this summer. And this week's RC360 road trip took us back to Austin, Manitoba for a visit to the Manitoba Amateur Radio Museum. We'll speak with founder and curator Dave Snydel about the museum's collection and the importance of amateur radio in our province. We've got all this, some great tunes, and much, much more on today's episode of River City 360. Hello, good morning, or good afternoon, depending on what time you're listening. Welcome to River City 360. It's Nolan and Robert here, back together again. The boys are back in town. Welcome back. Thank you. It's been a while. I've been busy. I've been pulling my hair out. Well, I shouldn't say pulling my hair out. I've been studiously and comfortably working on a lot of different projects and things going on. So thank you to both you and Sonny for picking up the reins and really running with the show the last couple of weeks. You guys have been doing a killer job. How have things been uh, with you without me in the picture for a while? You know, it's been good. Glad to have you back, of course. Oh, but uh, we've had a couple of really good weeks on, yeah. on the show, and uh, this week actually is no exception. Beautiful. Yeah, there's a lot of cool things, a lot of cool conversations. We're going to learn a lot about some Manitoba, some kind of secret, mani- some things I particularly didn't know about, especially when it comes to the uh, the first helicopter flight in Canada and in Manitoba, and a little bit about the Amateur Radio Museum. There's a lot of really kind of little hidden gems of Manitoba that we're going to be uh, discussing and discovering together for the show but we always kick things off with a song on on uh, rc360 here so uh robert what do you got for us this week well uh our first story is going to be about the b project apiaries and so we thought why not honey honey by abba right here on river city 360 
Welcome back to River City 360. I'm Sunny Promolo, and with me today is Chris Kuroak, co-founder for B Project Apiaries. Welcome to the show, Chris. Thanks. It's a pleasure to be here. What is B Project Apiaries? Uh, B Project Apiaries is a little organization that works to build awareness around issues of the importance of pollinators. Uh, so those could be the insects or other little critters that visit flowers and move pollen from flower to flower to increase our food uh, yields around the world. So they help farmers and gardeners produce food. We are reliant on these little critters and they're in decline. So one thing we do is just try to build awareness about their importance and ways that we can uh, live with them and help protect them. The other thing we try and work on is removing the disconnect between urbanites being city dwellers and the agriculture system. So we bring agriculture, in our case beekeeping, right into the city on different rooftops and at parks and in backyards. And we find that this breaks down some of the barriers and opens up a dialogue uh, where urban dwellers can ask questions about uh, food, food production, and about their impact on the environment and their, the impact of their purchasing power. You and I guess your partner, Lindsay, were both nurses. How did you venture into the world of bees? Yeah, it's a, a common and kind of funny question. We always smirk pretty big when someone asks. But uh, to be honest, we did uh, meet at nursing school at the University of Manitoba and a couple of years after finishing our bachelor degrees we were really interested in um, small-scale food production projects as well as small-scale agriculture and we bumped into beekeeping as a an option where you didn't have to immediately buy a lot of land you could often find places to put bees we started learning more and more about them and as we learned more we realized how many parallels there are between population health principles in the human world and population health issues in the bee or pollinator world and how they can touch on agriculture. And the bee and the life of the hive being a social insect where they work together as a team to accomplish a goal and just the magic that's in there just really captivated us. And it was something that we wanted to share with others. Uh, what are the benefits of urban hives? There's a few major benefits. Your question was, what are the benefits? There's kind of two categories. One category would be benefit for the bee. It's difficult to engage people in environmental discussions sometimes, discussions about sustainability. So the bee gets to be the representative for the other uh, insects in this case, and people become motivated to lessen chemical exposure to the bees, plant more bee-friendly flowers, to think about how they support an agriculture system that's healthy for um, the environment and for the long term. But also the bees love the heat that the city has. The little bit of extra warmth in the spring and fall is beneficial. Uh, there's a bit more of a wind buffer than how bees are kept traditionally in the countryside. They have a great diversity of flowers and uh, more and more urbanites are becoming very aware, they are very aware of gardening in a way that doesn't use too many chemicals or uh, things that might be harmful for bees. So it is a healthy environment for them. And then the benefits for people is that they're increasing the yields of gardens and of orchards. Um, they're producing honey right here where people are. And for people that might be new immigrants or don't have an agriculture family that, that lives on a farm still in Canada, it's a really great way to engage people. So the benefit is discussion, dialogue, builds community um, and relationships as you work through the hives and, and use the honey. So there's benefits for the bee and there's benefits for people. And we think they really do meet in a number of areas. You also mentioned in your website that uh, without bees, we risk losing one in three bites of food. How does that work? Insects generally need to visit most flowering plants. And if the flowers are not visited by insects and receive pollen from one flower to another, they will not produce fruit, seed, 
vegetable or nut, depending on what kind of plant it is. So the bee really helps with the production of fruits and vegetables and food by moving pollen from flower to flower as it forages for nectar. Um, in general, it's estimated that one in three bites of our food globally is reliant on insect pollination, wow. mainly the, the honeybee, the managed honeybee. There's also very important solitary bees that live in natively in, in areas that uh, we're hoping that the efforts and the interest in protecting the honeybee will cross over and also benefit those insects by the reduction in pesticides and by the increase in floral sources and habitat. And it's actually some of the most nutritious and colorful, I would say interesting foods mm -hmm. uh, that are on our plate. So we're talking 80 to 90% of blueberry production would be lost, wow. 80 to 90% of almond production would be lost. Then we drop a little bit for more typical fruits like apples and so on, but even those need to be pollinated. So anything from berries and apples and oranges in Florida, not in Canada, almonds in California, blueberries across Canada, all of these are very important. And some of them would be almost completely lost or be so expensive that the average person couldn't buy them if we lost the pollinators. And others, we would just find a serious decrease. Of course, we'd still have our grains and corn, but you can't have a healthy diet with just uh, carbs. Just carbs. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I had no idea. Uh, for those wanting to get involved with Bee Project Apiaries, I know you guys uh, have this thing where you can set up different hives at different locations. Yeah, how can uh, people get involved with that and what are the benefits to them by hosting, I guess, a hive? Yeah, there's a few different ways that the public can get involved with our business. So um, Bee Project installs and maintains hives on the rooftops of organizations or on their or properties around uh, the downtown and the city in general now. And so one way is to bring us on board with a partnership where we'll install and manage hives and we do programming for staff or community members uh, so that they can meet the bees, so that they can get a little bit hands-on with honey harvesting. But in general, we manage the hives, we harvest the honey in our CFIA inspected facility, and we return the honey yields to the partner in oh, wow. these cases. Uh, we also do the same for, uh, in some occasions, for families. and. We do, in the spring and fall, quite a bit of programming for elementary schools uh, and universities. So we'll go in as guest speaker. And we bring, uh, depending on the level of the audience, so if they're little kids, we bring props and different things and uh, discuss different issues in a way that they can understand. Uh, and that really, we find, motivates children. Um, and the children really are kind of the future of us living sustainably. So that's a, a huge joy for us and we do a lot of that in the spring and the early fall um, the other things though that the public can do to help support the pollinator if they either don't have the space for a hive or the know-how to take care of it or the time or the finances for the different things that are involved would be to plant bee-friendly flowers. So this, there's no silver bullet flower where, oh, we plant this one flower and all the pollinators will be happy. They like diversity. They like a blend of different flowers, gives them different um, parts of a well-balanced diet, uh, and it blooms throughout the season. So that's important, uh, building some habitat, allowing even uh, people to use your space sometimes if, if you're not using it to garden or so on, that also helps. So opening up public spaces across the city like parks or um, boulevards and things for gardening, this also actually helps with the pollinators. Very cool. I guess this is the question on everybody's mind. 
where can people get the honey? <laughs> so uh, it's funny. We, we really try not to focus strictly on the honey, but the truth is the honey is, is really beautiful. Uh, the flavor notes are different than you'd get in the countryside because mm. the flower sources are different. So every flower has a unique nectar with uh, unique color and flavor. So you can get really different and special honeys from the city. And we have a little shop in Osborne Village at 196 Osborne Street where we have our little production facility so you can see us harvesting the honey during the summer and bottling it up and you can purchase products there we sh we space share with oxford salon who's been in the village for many years uh, the other option is during the kind of fall season we do a number of these christmas markets and holiday markets so you can meet us at uh in third and bird or scattered seeds um we do uh, Lucky Girl alleyways during the season. So there's this farmer's market in the exchange district every few weeks and on Friday evening. So that's another option. Um, so we are around. The best would be really to check our Instagram to watch for where we are or our website. And we try and keep our social media and our website kind of up to speed. But reliably, we're in Osborne at our, our little space at 196 Osborne. Is there anything else that you'd like to share with us about Bee Project Apiaries? I think that one thing that I'd like to share, uh, not just about Bee Project, but this is like a little opportunity to speak for people working towards sustainable agriculture, mm -hmm. is that as city dwellers, you know, 80% of Canadians now live in large urban centers. And we have a huge, uh, a huge power in terms of pushing for policy or purchasing power. And so when we go and we, we purchase food that we know was made in a sustainable manner or a manner that we believe in the ethics of, that makes a huge difference by helping farmers, small farmers trying to do things a bit differently and even big farmers that are trying these practices that maybe require a bit more attention or a bit more man hours, so therefore cost to produce. So uh, we really want to remind people that, you know, Pressure your politicians. Think about what you're what you're buying, and uh, let's have that dialogue about where we want our food system to move in Canada and what direction we want to go. Awesome. Uh, before I let you go, uh, could you share with us uh, your website so people can find out more about Bee Project? Yeah, if you're wanting to find Bee Project or see some images of us with bees and people and around the city, uh, you could visit our website at beeproject.ca. We're also on Instagram at beeprojectca. And uh, we're on Facebook, too. Awesome. Thank you very much, Chris. Thanks so much for your time. Thanks, Sunny. Coming up after the break, it is the 80th anniversary of the flight of the Frabe helicopter, uh, which in, back in 1938, the three brothers from Homewood, Manitoba, which is just east of Carbon, Manitoba, designed built and flew Canada's first helicopter. Uh, we had a chance to speak with Charlie Frabe to learn all about its history. But before we get to Mr. Frabe, here's the cow sills with We Can Fly right here on River City 360. See how the fluffy clouds move by us. See how the clouds move by us. See how the morning mist can hide us away. Hide us away. And now is so much fun. What? Isn't it groovy in a daydream? Doesn't the day seem like it could never end? And so, my friend, we're one. Maybe it's funny how I can feel so sunny when you're beside me.
Thank you for listening to River City 360. My name is Nolan Bicknell, and I'm now joined via telephone by Charlie Frabe. He is the son of Nick Frabe, who is one of the designers, builders, and flyers of Canada's first helicopter way back in 1938. Charlie, thank you for joining us on the show. Uh, so we wanted to have you on because uh, it's been almost i think 80 years since the uh, the very first helicopter flight in canada and second in all of the world i guess my first question though uh you you had a plaque that was unveiled in homewood manitoba honoring nick doug and and uh Fr- and deed how did that all come together i understand you kind of organized it all and and what was it like and just give, take take us through that day in july well I, I started out about a year and a half ago to get a little plaque to put up for the occasion and uh, along came uh, a tap from the Aviation Museum and my fr- first cousin once removed, uh, Len Frabe, and uh, they suggested that we go a little bigger. And uh, so we started uh, looking at uh, cairns, and we ended up getting a very lovely cairn, which we have in Homewood now. And uh, we decided, well, we'd, we'd put it in with a whole uh, group of uh, a reunion for the town, village of Homewood, and uh, we would unveil it at that time, and uh, that's what we did on July the 15th this summer. What was the significance of July 15th? I'm sorry? What was the significance of this year and, and oh, in July? Oh, we just had a, well, a Homewood reunion, and that was part of the, the Homewood reunion was the unveiling of the uh, cairn for the first helicopter flight in Canada and another cairn for the Homewood school, actually. Very cool. So what, if, you, if you could put yourself in your dad and your, and your uncle's shoes, what do you think motivated them to pursue such a, you know, probably at the time, a bit of a crazy dream? Mm-hmm. Well, they were always enthused with aviation. They were from Illinois originally, 100 miles south of Chicago. And apparently during the First World War, there was uh, planes taking off and landing and doing their practicing very close to their farm. And I guess the spirit... Uh, 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 got them interested in aviation originally. Uh, then when they moved up to uh, Canada in 1921, they uh, actually built and flew uh, several airplanes uh, prior to working on the helicopter. And they decided in their infinite wisdom that the way, the way of the future was with, a, heli- with a, a, a machine that would take off vertically and this kind of thing, it would be much easier to maneuver than an aeroplane. Yeah. So this is kind of why it, why, why it all got started. Very interesting. So what what happened after they got that first flight? Did they still continue uh, pursuing aviation, or did they transition out? Yeah, no. Uh, they, they started originally in '35 to develop this thing, and uh, they designed it and drew it, and they took several courses each. Uh, they took uh, welding and uh, metalwork and uh, drafting and, and came up with this idea of this helicopter, and uh, eventually uh, uh, got enough material and everything to manufacture it because, of course, this was in the middle of the Depression. 
and uh, they actually got the engine uh, for it down in uh, Los Angeles from a used aircraft dealer down there. Wow. And brought it up to Canada. And uh, in 1938, they finally got the thing off the ground. It was after many temp- many attempts over the two or three years that they were developing it. For sure. And uh, one of the things that they did do in the process or had had problem with in the process was vibration in the machine. Of course, all the parts that they all the parts that they used were literally anything they could find. <laughs> the, 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 one of the things that they did was to tie. <laughs> tie some weights on the end of the, of the propellers in order to, uh, or veins, I guess they're called, in order to try and get the vibration out. But, of course, once they got it revved up, the, they, they flew off the end of the vein and nearly killed themselves. But anyway, uh, it was all a very interesting exercise. And just the fact that they did it in, in a, a farm shop with no outside monies, as the uh, Germans had done uh, they were the ones that had the first helicopter flight in the world. Uh, they had, of course, had government money. Uh-huh. The Americans uh, simultaneously were working on it in the U.S. with, of course, again, government money. And these these <laughs> three gentlemen in their 20s developed this uh, helicopter in Homewood, Manitoba and actually got it off the ground in December of 1938. It was quite an amazing story. It's an incredible story, absolutely. How do, how do you feel, like, what what's it like for your family to be part of such an incredible legacy uh, in Canada? Well, um, unfortunately, uh, we lost uh, um, our one uncle deed in 1943 in an airplane accident, and of oh. course we lost our, our own father in 1959 in an aerial spraying accident. So there was only Uncle Doug left, and he lived in California and ultimately in, in Maryland, so he never really had a lot of opportunity to, to speak to any of them when became when we became the age that we would be interested in this kind of stuff, right. and we kept moving this thing from one place to the other on the farm. My brother and I we were farming together, and uh, we had a, a chap come to do an uh, an advertisement for a herbicide one uh, uh, summer at our farm, and I got talking to him, and he said he was going up with the aviation museum to bring a a uh, uh, aircraft out of the lake that had crashed in the lake and this was and I said well you're interested in aviation old aviation I said yeah well uh, have a look at this helicopter over here we've been moving from shed to shed because we really didn't know what to do with it and uh, oh he got quite excited and uh, so anyway we documented it all and we uh, uh, documented it through the Canadian Aviation Historical Society and uh, it ended up in the museum in Winnipeg now so have you guys been kind of keeping keeping it up and maintaining it, or does the museum do that? Museum does that. Yeah. What's it like seeing it sort of displayed at the uh, at the Aviation Museum of Western Canada? Would you, do you get a little a little bit of chills, or is it a little pride go through you at all? Well, yeah, we we uh, we had the grandson in there one time, and and of course we thought, well, we better get him in in the seat. And of course, there's a great big sign there that says, you know, do not touch the machine, blah blah blah. I think you. I think they can make a. They can make a, uh, an exception for the family. I, I would just say. Well, we we put him in the seat and was taking his picture, and this security guy come running over and he says, "No, no, no, you can't do that." And we said, "Well, this is the gra- the great grandson of the one of the um, original right. people involved with it." So they kind of settled down after that. That's pretty cool. That's a great picture and a great great memory for sure. You bet. Is there anything else you'd like Manitobans to kind of know about the Frabe helicopter, or about your dad, or about your uncles and their achievement? Well, they were all uh, unique in their own uh, own vision. Uh, actually, uh, 
they actually built two houses in Homewood with flat roofs on them so that they could land their helicopters on them. Oh, man, that's awesome. I never did figure out, though, how they were going to get off the roof. <laughs> but I guess they were going to work on that later when they got the helicopters up there. Well, they sound like very dedicated and and industrious and and a little bit geni- a little bit mad genius of of a family. So uh... in those days, there were very few automobiles out around, mm-hmm. and um, the the their thinking was kind of like the the uh, uh, movies that you see nowadays with everything flying up and down the streets. That uh, I think that was kind of their vision of what the world would be like eventually. And uh, right. Everybody would be flying a helicopter, but uh, anyway. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Thank you for sharing your story, Charlie. Uh, you are the son of Nick Frabe who is, and the nephew of Doug and Deed Frabe, the designers, builders, and flyers of Canada's first helicopter way back in 1938. Thank you very much for, uh, for talking to us today and sharing your story, and, and we really appreciate your time. Well, thank you. It's a very unique story, and it's just totally amazing that it is during the Depression and in the small farm shop. But anyway, Definitely. that was good fun. Thanks. Thanks, Nolan. Up next, the Winnipeg Foundation Summer Internship Program is about to wrap up for this year. RC360 Sonny Primolo continues his conversation with Brigitte DePap, the Foundation's Youth Engagement Coordinator, to learn more about this year's program, and we'll also hear from two more summer interns about their experiences. Before we get to that, though, here are the Beach Boys with All Summer Long, right here on River City 360.
Welcome back to River City 360. I'm Sonny Promolo, and with me again is Brigitte DePap, Youth Engagement Coordinator from the Winnipeg Foundation. Welcome back, Brigitte. Thanks so much for having me. So last week we talked about uh, doing an internship program through the Winnipeg Foundation. Uh, we just wanted to find out a little bit more about uh, this year in particular. So we had four placements, I believe. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. So we have four placements this year. One is at Mumaway, another one at Inclusion Winnipeg. One is at Mosaic and at Art City. So that's something that we tried to do this year is to really reach diverse youth through our programs. And I think we're really able to achieve that. Can you give me a little bit of background behind the different organizations? Like what is Mama Way? What is Art City, Inclusion, Mosaic? Absolutely. Uh, so Mosaic is a wonderful community organization that provides services to newcomers. Um, so things like English classes, as well as orientation sessions for life in Winnipeg. And in particular, this intern is working with youth on their summer programs. It's really cool for me because that was actually my introduction oh, to wow. working in community service, was volunteering with my big sister um, over at IRCOM and working with children uh, from all over the world uh, who'd come to Canada. So it was really cool to see uh, another intern being part of that and really thriving in that environment too. It was actually really adorable. We saw her, um, she brought this painting to show us when we went on a site visit there of this uh, child who had made her a painting that said, I love you, Jen. <laughs> and it was just so adorable. So she is taking a leadership role there. She's coordinating uh, some of the arts programming as well as some of the uh, sports programming for, for youth so that they have a really fun, fun and safe summer. Um, and then very similarly, over at Art City, uh, we have an intern who's working on their uh, Green Kids program. So that's doing environmental arts projects uh, and as well with kids uh, in the West Broadway area in arts programming. And then we have a similar placement over at Mosaic, um, mostly working with Indigenous youth on their summer programming, as well as cultural activities. And then our final placement is over at Inclusion Winnipeg, and they advocate for people with intellectual disabilities. And our intern is working on their 60th anniversary project, wow. uh, Yeah, which is an archival project mapping the history of the movement for the rights of people with intellectual disabilities. So the sippers are actually doing things of significance then. It's not just like kind of interning, getting coffee type deal. It's yes. Yeah. That's a really good point. And that's something that we really emphasize when we are looking at different possible placements is we really want to make sure that they have a specific project that they're working on and that they are getting meaningful work experience in the charitable sector. Just to go back a little bit, how are students picked to join the SIP program? Mm -hmm. So these are really remarkable students who are part of this. They come from all different high schools from our youth and philanthropy program. Um, so this year we have uh, youth from the inner city, from Argyle. We have youth from Balmoral High School. Um, so it's a real broad range of youth from north, south, east, west. And the, the one criteria is that they need to have been part of the youth and philanthropy program. So that gives us an indication that they care about their community 
and this is a way that they can further their experience. So YIP is a volunteer program. This is the next step because it's also giving them employment experience. That's awesome. So obviously they're gaining a lot of experience, but they're also providing a lot to the organizations that they're uh, interning at. Yes, and I think one of the most inspiring stories from this year is a young woman who had gone to Mama Way uh, as she was growing up. And that was a service that was really helpful for her. Mm. And it was really wonderful when we went on our site visit to Mama Way to hear from her, to see her really thriving, and to hear that she now felt like she got to give back to Mama Way wow. by working there. That's really awesome. Mm. So speaking again of these sippers, we have two more sippers that will uh, share with us their experiences during their placements. I'm here with Sharice Liebricht, a student from Argyle High School and intern for Mama Way. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. What made you take part in the Winnipeg Foundation Summer Internship Program? I just wanted an opportunity to get to know my community in a more productive environment. What did you learn about the community from your time over at Mama Way? Well, having grown up in the North End, I thought I knew all the struggles, but um, being able to work with these youth directly, I realized that the issues of drugs, youth sexuality and exploitation and violence are a lot more profound than even I had experienced growing up. Based on your experiences, what are some of your takeaways from the SIP program? I think it is a great opportunity for youth to get to know their communities in a more productive and beneficial relationship as well as to get to know more directly the issues that people face that we may be privileged or blind to seeing. What are some of the takeaways you have from your uh, placement there at Mamoy? I think that as families, we can do so much more to protect the children and youth in our environments. Where do you see yourself in 10 years? I would hope to be using everything that I have learned to better the uh, relationships I have with my own family and my own children and hopefully continuing to make an impact with the children of my community at the same time. Thank you. Well, thank you for having me. I'm here with Jennifer Lansang, a student from St. James Collegiate and summer intern for Mosaic Newcomer Family Resources Network Incorporated. Welcome to the show. Hi, thanks so much for having me. So what made you take part in the Winnipeg Foundation Summer Internship Program? Well, um, I knew some older people in my high school that took the summer internship program. And um, they just told me a lot of like rewarding experiences that they had from there. And it really inspired me just to go and try it out. What have you learned about the community from your time over at Mosaic Newcomer Family Resources Network? Um, I actually learned a lot because I met so many people and just learned a lot about where they come from, how they live. And I think I just became a more well-informed person overall. What are some of your takeaways from the SIP program itself? While working with kids, um, my role was being a leader at their summer youth program. And um, I actually didn't know how much I could um, teach the kids. I felt like I was such a big role model to them, like as a sister, as a teacher, as one of the adults in the room. So that's definitely something that I'll take away from this summer. What are some of your takeaways from your placement over at Mosaic? The environment there is just very welcoming. First being there, I was a little intimidated, but um, it kind of feels like a little family over there. So I think that just getting to know people in different places just shows how warm a community can be. 
Where do you see yourself in 10 years? I'll have graduated um, university. Hopefully a master's in environmental studies is what I'm thinking so far. I hope to be working in the environmental field. I don't know if it's with conservation or if I'm going to be working for a nonprofit, but um, that's something that I want to do in the future. Awesome. Thank you, Jen. No problem. Thank you so much. That was really awesome. So again, Brigitte, uh, we thank you again for coming to visit us here at River City 360. Uh, is there anything else that you can share with us about the YIP and SIP programs? Yeah, so these are really inspiring programs for youth to empower youth and give them a chance to make a difference in the community. We're really excited because this is our 20th anniversary oh, wow. of YIP coming up this year 20 years yes so we'll have 30 schools and organizations who are part of the program we have a conference that's coming up in october and we're really excited because our yippers we asked them what they wanted to focus on this year as a theme and they chose the theme of sustainability awesome yeah so we're going to be hearing some wonderful keynotes we're going to be talking about sustainability and really getting our youth motivated to take action this year through their grant making, their site visits. That's awesome. Thank you again, Brigitte Depap from uh, the Winnipeg Foundation for joining us today to talk about the SIP program. You have yourself a great day. You too. Thanks. Thank you, Sunny. Coming up next is the RC360 Road Trip, where we visited the Manitoba Amateur Radio, Mu Radio Museum in Austin, Manitoba. It holds the distinction of being Canada's only amateur radio museum, and following our visit, we caught up via telephone with its founder and curator, Dave Snydel, to learn a little bit more. But before we get to learning about all about Manitoba Amateur Radio Museum, we're going to hear radio and TV by the Everly Brothers right here on River City 360. Say 
Welcome to the River City 360 Road Trip. Today we're heading out to Austin, Manitoba, where we visited the Manitoba Amateur Radio Museum. Let's go! Welcome back to River City 360. My name is Robert Zirk, and uh, we were recently on a road trip to the Manitoba Amateur Radio Museum, and I'm now speaking with the curator of the museum, Dave Snydel. Dave, thank you so much for joining me today. Yes, thank you. And I, I'm the founder, too, of that museum. That's right. Uh, I was going to mention that. You're not only the uh, the curator, but also its founder. And I'm wondering if you can speak a little bit to how did the museum get started? Well, we were down uh, putting an amateur radio machine. I had a friend that was acquainted with the uh, Agriculture Museum and said there was no evidence of any radio going on there. So we established a radio station during the reunion in 1980. Then it just grew from there, and we decided the curator of the Agriculture Museum at that time was Terry Farley. And I said, what do you think after four or five years I should start a museum and he said, well, give it a whirl. So I did, and then in 1990, we got the building going, and away we are to this day. Very cool. And uh, as you mentioned, even to this day as well, the museum, inside the museum, is an operating amateur radio station that broadcasts during the uh, the Threshermen's reunion. Tell us a little bit more about, uh, about the station set up there. Yeah, we have uh, the state-of-the-art amateur radio station that operates Anytime we have action going on, like the reunion. And then we have Wi-Fi in the building and given to us by a good friend of mine. And then we have four beacons that are going 24 hours a day, seven days a week on four different frequencies, advertising the fact that it's emanating from our museum. And we contact all over the world on that. And we have a local repeater, too, that the amateur radio fraternity can use to... Uh, communicate across the country with so we've got a good setup the east tower is 80 feet and the other one 48 feet robert glenn you mentioned that uh the station can be heard pretty much all over the world have you received any confirmations where where are some places that people might be listening from oh all over england scotland germany egypt uh worldwide australia new zealand and uh, in fact, I was down there yesterday, Robert, and we had people from England and Netherlands there signed the register. Oh, wow. When we walked into the museum, the first thing we noticed, of course, there's radios everywhere. There's shelves and shelves of them all along the walls. Can you tell us a little bit more about the collection of radios and where they come from? Oh, yeah. Well, all those radios are what amateurs ready used over the years, you know, dating way back into the 30s. Most of that stuff come from people that use them for their hobby, and we eventually get them when, when, uh, mostly from estates and that kind of thing. And uh, there's every kind of, we, we just deal in amateur radio stuff alone. There's a few broadcast receivers that people use to listen to amateur radio or listen to any, any foreign broadcasts, really. But that's mainly what it is. And we have a good array of uh, old equipment. And the ones you see standing up are the real old, early stuff, those racks. So I even remember the hams using them. And I'm not that old. <laughs> Go ahead, Robert. What other artifacts can we find in the museum? Well, I think you noticed uh, that there's uh, tubes 
radio tube display there and uh, an old tube machine that used to be in corner stores to check your tubes for your broadcast radio, that kind of thing. And then we have many um, uh, arrays. That one outfit down in the corner there, if you notice, transferring everything, that belonged to a blind operator. He used that whole facility in that corner. And um, there's a bit of military stuff there that was retuned amateur radio uh, frequencies, uh, Robert Goyle. The Manitoba Amateur Radio Museum holds the distinction of being the only amateur radio museum in Canada. And I'm wondering if you can speak to the role that Manitoba has played in amateur radio or even the role that amateur radio has played in Manitoba. Why is it important to have this museum? Well, I'll tell you. This is to let the public know that amateur radio has not only been a hobby, but in the 1950 floods, they've deposited even airlifted operators all down through the Red River Valley there for communication from those small communities. And also in any disaster, we've become the forefront. We have a whole operating facility. Every one of us that are active have a mobile unit. In fact, locally here, we assist the city police in Halloween night for 17 years. Wow. That kind of thing is going on all the time. And it kind of reminds the public that we're just not a hobby. We're a useful communication ability. So that, um, that puts us in the forefront. And I wanted to present that really was one of the reasons that important to have the museum. And there's so many people that have made contributions to the museum as well and to the amateur radio scene here in Manitoba. Yes, we, we've got a lot of important people that are ham operators too over the years, so that, that helps. And did you notice our, our rogues gallery above the display of the viewing windows there? All those people have given more than just the average to our museum for the benefit of the museum. And we honor them in that regard. Uh, we've got a good group of people. The only thing lacking these days now is the young people are not taking up the hobby. The Internet has kind of taken over a wee bit. But we're still holding our place in the world, uh, Robert Gwen. If any of our listeners would like to come and visit the Amateur Radio Museum for themselves, or uh, if they'd like to, uh, to get in contact, what's the best way for them to do that? You realize we have a website, too, I suppose. Yeah, that's one way. And we have the pamphlets in the museum there and stating who you contact. And uh, if they get a hold of us, we have our examiners that belong to our club here locally. We have two of them. If they're interested in taking up the hobby, they can guide them as to what they should study and write their exam and get their license. All right. And the website is marminc.ca for people that want to get more information online about the Manitoba Amateur Radio Museum active there. We attend any amateur radio-sponsored events. We try to uh, attend everyone with a display. Twice in Winnipeg we have a display at their flea markets where the biggest base of amateur radios is in the greater Winnipeg area. So we try to keep right in front of them so they know what's going on. Go ahead. Thank you so much, Dave, for speaking with me today about the Amateur Radio Museum. I appreciate it. Yeah, you bet. Thanks for coming on the RC360 Road Trip. See you next week, same time, different place.
Thank you, Robert, and thanks again to Dave Snydel for speaking with us all about the Manitoba Amateur Radio Museum in Austin, Manitoba. We hope you'll join us for our last road trip of the season next week, and don't forget that you can listen to any or all of the past uh, road trips on our website. You can visit rivercity360.org. Scroll down till you see the link for RC360 Road Trip, and then all the stories are there to listen to, just separated out from the actual uh, episodes themselves. So go on in. If you missed any road trips, check them out. It's a really cool little slice of, uh, of Manitoba, and if you uh, have the chance to go, you should visit some of the museums that we got to go to because they were all very cool. We've got time for a little bit of music before we say goodbye today. So uh, how about Mary Wells with The One Who Really Loves You right here on River City 360. Some other girls are filling your head with joy. was Mary Wells, the one who really loves you. You are listening to River City 360. Robert and Nolan here with you today. And we've got time for one last song before we say goodbye. So to throw back to today's first story about the B Project Apiaries, how about another song called Honey Honey? Here's Ray Charles right here on River City 360. When I got misery, oh my. Where are you, honey, honey, oh, honey, honey, where can you be? Whispering when the lights are low to each teardrop on my pillow. 
That's a wrap on this week's episode of River City 360. Thank you so much for tuning in today, and a huge thank you to all of our guests for talking to us as well. If you'd like to hear more views and news from around Winnipeg, listen to any of our past episodes, or subscribe to our podcast, please visit our website at rivercity360.org. Again, that's rivercity360.org. River City 360, views and news from around Winnipeg, is a project of the Winnipeg Foundation in partnership with 93.7 CJNU. And of course, we love to hear your feedback about the show. Please give us a call and let us know what you think of the stories we shared today. Our number is 204-944-9474, extension 360. It's a listener line open 24-7. So if you're listening to the podcast at any time of the day, give us a call and leave us a message. We would love to hear from you. Again, the number to call is 204-944-9474, extension 360. You can also hit us up on Twitter or on Facebook by searching at River City 360 on Twitter or River City, River City 360 on Facebook as well. I'm Nolan Bicknell, signing off for River City 360. And I'm Robert Zirk. Thank you again so much for listening, and we'll see you next week. Have a great day and a great weekend. Thank you.